0: Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, and welcome to
1: Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Krokover. Today's episode is going to focus on how we can protect our health through screenings and other preventive measures. And this is so important right now because many of us have not been keeping up on our own health maintenance me included, to be quite honest. This has been one of the effects of the COVID epidemic that doesn't get talked about enough. In fact, last year, a group from the National Cancer Institute reviewed the data on cancer screening and found that many of the screening rates for breast, cervical, colorectal, and lung cancer, which are all major causes of death for women, went down significantly. That means we are going to see more cancers diagnosed at later stages when they're harder to treat. The same is true for chronic conditions like diabetes, heart disease, and high blood pressure. What has also happened in the past few years is that some screening guidelines have changed. So I've got a great guest to put this all in perspective and give you the information you need to get back on track. And we have so much important information to share. I've divided this interview into two episodes. In this first episode, we'll focus on cancer screening and the newest guidelines, and in the second episode, we'll cover heart health, osteoporosis, vaccines, and more. You won't want to miss either one of these conversations. Our guest today is my good friend, Dr. Janet Pregler, professor of clinical medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and the Iris Cantor Endowed Chair in Women's Health. Welcome, Janet.
2: Thanks a lot, Mitzi.
1: I wanted to bring you on because many of us, me included, did not go in for our regular checkups and screenings due to the lockdown from COVID, and we're now seeing that those skipped visits are having an impact. So today, I just want to talk about the kinds of things that we should be getting screened for and other preventive health practices women should know about. There have also been a number of updates that we're going to address, so let's just start. What's new in cancer screening and what should women know about?
2: Well, thanks, Mitzi. As you know, I'm really thrilled to talk about this because I've had personal experience in my practice with the impact of COVID on cancer screening. Absolutely, the rates of screening dropped. We know they dropped 80% back in March and April of 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. And the issue is, you know, many mammography units closed. Many gynecologists and and, and other preventive health doctors are still trying to catch up on doing things like pap tests. It's hard for women to get in. Mm -hmm. So those are all huge issues. But the other thing that's really important for women to to think about is, did COVID disrupt the follow-up for you of something that was already abnormal? So when we were talking about this, I shared with you, I was um, working with our residents at our federally qualified health center Um, and we were talking by phone to a patient with severe diabetes who had gotten a lot of management of her diabetes. No one had followed up on her abnormal pap test that occurred Mm -hmm. right before the pandemic started. Um, Now, hopefully she's going to be okay, but it was only by really saying, you know, we've got to go back and look and make sure these things happened, um, that that proceeded the way it needed to. Um, So I think what's happened is, yes, we need to catch up. But also interestingly, during the pandemic, when all these other things were going on, um, we've had some updates um, in what should be done for cancer screening. Um, So if you haven't been to your doctor in a while, there's some new things um, that are really important to think about. Um, And when I think of these kind of globally, they fall into a few categories. Um, So the one one category is we're learning that unfortunately certain cancers are occurring younger. um, And colon cancer Uh, Which is um, the number three cancer killer for both men and women, very common, uh, is unfortunately being seen more now in younger people. So, although overall we've seen a reduction in deaths from colon cancer because people are getting their screening, it's the young people where we're seeing an increase. Um, so now, for the first time, we're saying that colon cancer screening should really start at the age of 45. And that's a new recommendation. And, you know, so if, if folks are 45 or in their late 40s, now's the time to go and make sure you get checked. Um, the other thing that's really important is that you talk to your uh, doctor about your family history. Um, because we now also know the importance of if your mom or your dad, sister or brother, had colon cancer or a colon polyp, you should start your screening even younger. And again, these are things that weren't really thought about as much, even a few years ago, so important to catch up on that.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about colon cancer with respect to, you just talked about a family history, and this can go for a number of cancers. When and what kind, when should one get genetically tested or get genetic testing, I should say, um, who should get genetic testing and what do they ask for? How are physicians recommending this to their patients?
2: Yeah, it's a good question about genetic testing. Um, so one thing I do want to say about genetic testing is is that um, this has been an area of, of really extreme health disparities, particularly in the area of breast cancer. Um, so for many years, we really thought about genetic uh, causes of breast cancer, particularly the BRCA or BRCA1 and 2 gene, as being a gene that women who had a Jewish background had. you know, And we really didn't think about that for other women. But we're now understanding that as an example, Black women, Latino women also have high rates of this BRCA gene, which causes early breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer, which is usually fatal. Um, so it's important to understand that it doesn't matter, you know, um, how you would identify yourself in terms of your ethnicity. Um, you're at risk, and you need to consider genetic testing. But I would say right now, um, it's important that you talk to your doctor on a regular basis about your family history, especially if there's a change. You know, again, you may you may find your family doctor at the age of 22. And it might be that when you're 32 or 42 or 52, someone in your family has a really significant cancer diagnosis, um, and you need to, to talk about that. Um, and then your doctor's going to take that information uh, and then decide your level of risk and about referring you for genetic testing. Um, now again, there's all sorts of genetic testing that goes on, and you know, including my mom who had genetic testing that showed that she was part Neanderthal, which she's actually quite proud of. <laughs> but um, <aren't> we all, <laughs> right, right. So there's all kinds of genetic testing. But if you have a family history of cancer, you want to see a genetic counselor. You want to have genetic testing um, that is medical grade. Um, And you want to make sure that you have someone who really knows how to interpret the results, um, discuss them with you. Um, And all those things are really important to make sure that that you get the right health outcome um, from testing.
1: I want to underline what you just said, because as you said, a lot of people are going to different commercial kinds of genetic testing that, you know, they can find out who their ancestors are. And oh, by the way, you know, find out about their breast cancer risk. And that's not the same as the kind of medical genetic testing that you're talking about.
2: That's absolutely right. So, you know, obviously, if you get genetic testing in some other way, and a concern is raised, you want to follow that up with your doctor, but you can never trust um, a genetic test that's not done, you know, through the proper health channels to say that you're not at risk. And it's also important to understand that sometimes a preliminary test might show risk that's actually not there. So you also don't want to take um, a measure that might affect your health. As an example, having your ovaries removed um, without being sure that you've really had reliable testing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then just to finish up with the um, colorectal screening, um, I'm sure that there are a lot of questions out there about the DNA test or a Cologuard versus the colonoscopy. And I'm sure that some people are thinking, oh, I'd much rather uh, do that than uh, have the whole uh, colonoscopy uh, exam.
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question. So you know, I would say that obviously, um, when you and I were practicing together years ago, um, you know, there was a period of time where we, <laughs> where we really considered, you know, colonoscopy was it, you know, and and really everyone should do colonoscopy, and if they didn't do that, you know, we felt that that wasn't the best care. Um, I would say that you know the thoughts on that have changed. It's still absolutely true that if you have a genetic syndrome. Um, If you have a family history of colon cancer, you should have colonoscopy. Um, But for people who don't have a particular increased risk, it is okay to consider these other methods, particularly if you don't want to do a colonoscopy, because they're much better um, than than doing nothing. Now the thing about the stool tests, whether you do um, a stool test that looks only for blood uh, which are the ones that we typically do here at UCLA, or whether you pay for the Cologuard, which adds a DNA test, is that in either case, if they're abnormal, you have to do the colonoscopy. You really are at increased risk. And you know, one of the issues I've found with my patients is, it'll be abnormal and then they'll call up and say, well, could I do it again? <laughs> And the answer is... Until
1: you get the right answer.
2: (laughs) Um, And even if you do it again and it's negative, that doesn't mean you aren't at risk. Because the important thing to understand is we know that those polyps and those cancers only bleed or only shed the DNA sort of intermittently. So, you know, you can have a negative test and still have a problem there. The reason those tests work pretty well is that you do them on a fairly regular basis so that you can still pick up something before it becomes severe. Um, and, and that's why, as an example, if you have a colonoscopy, unless there's an abnormality, every 10 years is okay because things grow slowly there. But the other thing about doing a test like a, a so-called FIT test, which is what we do at UCLA, which is the fecal blood test, um, or the ColGuard is you really need to do it at the intervals that are recommended for it to work. Um, so one of the things that we've found in some studies is that um, it can be hard for people, as an example, to do those tests every year or every three years or whatever the recommended interval is for them. Um, and you're really not going to be well protected if you're not able to do that. So that would take you back then to considering a colonoscopy.
1: Great. Thank you. Let's talk about lung cancer.
2: Yeah. So, you know, this is such an important issue because, um, you know, what one of the experts here at UCLA talks about is um, lung cancer is kind of the last cancer where um, there's a lot of shame and where, you know, a lot of people, because they've had a history of smoking, may be reluctant to bring up their risk or to pursue getting an evaluation when they're afraid that they might have a problem. Um, And again, I think it's interesting to remember, and and it's hard for younger people even to wrap their head around, that used to be true for all cancer. You know, it it used to be that people didn't want to disclose if they'd had breast cancer, as an example. But now it's really lung cancer where we see this. So what's happened is we've really seen the success of lung cancer screening. Um, I have several women in my practice who, frankly, um, I think would, would have passed away by now from lung cancer, but instead they're healthy because they had lung cancer screening and we found lung cancer at a very early stage. Um, so because of the successes that we've seen, we have a recent recommendation now to expand uh, the people that we test um, and specifically for women Um, If you've smoked in the last 15 years, you need to talk to your doctor about that. Um, And based on the amount that you've smoked, then you can have um, a screening uh, CT scan to look for lung cancer. Now, the radiation that's used in the screening test is very low um, and much safer than the risk of lung cancer. Um, On the other hand, if you're someone who's never smoked, um, the risk of that radiation really is higher um, than doing the screening. So, again, it's important to um, talk about those risks in terms of your own uh, context.
1: And I think most people would be surprised to know that lung cancer is the number one killer when it comes to cancer for women.
2: And, you are 100% right. <laughs> that, that's you know, so true.
1: Yeah. But here's the tricky part is that women are the majority of people that have not smoked to have lung cancer.
2: That's totally true. And actually, um, we've done some research here at UCLA looking at the interaction as an example between estrogen and lung cancer. Um, So uh, we don't know exactly why that is. It could be partially biological. Um, It's also clearly that women uh, have higher exposure to secondhand smoke, particularly occupationally, because it's women who are... You know, working as waitresses, working in bars, working in places where they're really heavily exposed to smoke. Um, And the other interesting thing from the global health perspective is we're seeing a huge rise in lung cancer that comes from pollution. um, And also from women who um, are exposed to smoke because they cook indoors, particularly in environments where it's dangerous because of assault for them to leave their homes. Um, And so from a global perspective, unfortunately, we're really seeing an epidemic of lung cancer.
1: And just to be clear, there's really no screening for that kind of
2: cancer, correct? At this point, no. And again, the reason is because the screening that we have employs radiation. And so there is some risk to giving radiation year after year after year looking for lung cancer. Um, again, it's worth doing if you're in that high-risk category of a woman who's smoked in the last 15 years and at least a 20-pack-year smoking history. A
1: pack-year is smoking one pack a day per year. So a 20-pack-year is the equivalent of either smoking a pack of cigarettes each day for 20 years, or it could be smoking two packs a day for 10 years and so forth.
2: But for women who have never smoked Um, Unfortunately, at this point, we can't identify who we should be uh, looking at. Now, again, I would say if you have sort of an exceptional situation where you know that you've had another really significant exposure that wasn't your own smoking, you know, I think that's worth talking to your physician about for sure. Um, But in terms of the recommendations, that's uh, where we're at now.
1: Got it. So the next one, the most common cancer in women, breast cancer. A lot of controversy there. you want to try to tease that out for us?
2: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. This is a huge area of controversy. And, you know, I will say that the expert panels don't help us because this appears to be one place where they all want to say something slightly different. And that's really confusing for women. Um, So, you know, I always start where there's broad agreement across every nation that can afford it that women between the ages of 50 and 74 should have mammograms at least every other year. And no matter where you go in the the high income world, that's what's gonna be recommended. So I think we should start there. The controversy really comes down to how often should we do mammograms? Every one or two years? Should we do mammograms for women in their 40s? And then what about women who are over the age of 74? Okay, so For women in their 40s, I think it's important to understand that even the experts who said we don't recommend mammograms routinely in the 40s, even they will tell you that mammograms in the 40s reduce deaths from breast cancer. So there's no question that mammography works. The issue is is that breast cancer is less common for women in the 40s. Um, And that no matter what your age, if you get a mammogram, a so-called false positive is pretty common. Um, So if you talk to to most women my age or older, it's pretty likely that they've had a callback because there was a concern about a mammogram or maybe even a biopsy when they didn't have cancer. Um, So that's sort of the balance that we're talking about. Um, So when women are 40, they really should have a risk assessment. Because it's important to understand that that recommendation, the strong recommendation between age 50 and 74 is assuming that you're at normal risk for breast cancer. But if you have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, if you've had breast biopsies in the past, you really need to talk to your doctor about that starting at the age of 40. Um, The other issue, as I've discussed, is we know that black women are at particular risk for uh, more aggressive cancers prior to menopause. Um, So if you identify as black, I think you really should have that discussion about earlier screening um, with your uh, physician. Um, If we're going to screen in the 40s, most experts would recommend taking a mammogram every year because we know that for women in their 40s, that's more effective. Um, And groups like the American Cancer Society, you know, have suggested that we should continue annual mammograms at least through the age of 55. What I tell my patients is there is good data that once you're over 55, um, because the breast cancers tend to grow more slowly, um, that there probably isn't a big benefit to doing mammograms every year versus um, every other year, but that should be your individualized decision. You wanna be comfortable with that, but if you're saying, gee, I'd really like to go every other year, I think once you're over 55, that is fine. Now, in terms of women over the age of 74, Um, I will say again, as a women's health advocate, I'm a little frustrated um, by that age 74 because there's no magic to that. That's just when the, excuse me, male doctors um, decided that that was going to be the maximum age in these clinical trials. You know, so so they just kind of made that up. So what happens if you're 75 and you're completely healthy? Well, what I will tell you is that um, experts in uh, medicine for older women will tell you that there's, there's still benefit to that, um, that finding a cancer earlier when you're in your late 70s or even early 80s may not extend your life, but what it does do is it makes the treatment much simpler. Um, If you wait until you feel a mass um, to detect breast cancer in an older woman, that's going to result in uh, a bigger surgery, potentially other uh, more toxic treatment. Um, And even though that might not affect your life expectancy, that could affect you in other ways. So my recommendation for healthy women in their late 70s and even early 80s is consider a mammogram, Um, again, what's our approach if we find cancer? Um, It's important to remove breast cancer always. This is not like prostate cancer in elderly men where sometimes it's okay just to leave it. Um, You really do have to remove it um, because if it grows, um, it can really cause significant symptoms and problems in the breast itself. Um, But the treatment does not have to be as toxic. You know, I'll never forget, I had a very healthy patient, a super ager, Uh, that we diagnosed with an aggressive breast cancer at the age of 89. Um, And, you know, that's something where if we diagnosed that, you know, even 15 years earlier, we would have recommended uh, aggressive chemotherapy. And so this is someone who is so, you know, active and vibrant, I felt like I should at least say, you know, some people would consider this. And she looked at me and she said, do you expect me to live to 140? You know, oh, so again, that. for an 89 year old, the surgery was definitely what should happen. And she had radiation treatment. Um But, you know, again, we individualized and realized that chemotherapy was not the right thing for her and she's doing great. Um So I think those are some of the controversies.
1: You no, know, I think that that was a beautiful explanation of a very complicated set of guidelines that have, I think, flummoxed everybody. And then just to remind, you know, from the previous conversation, genetic testing can be a piece
2: of that as well. Absolutely. So again, when you're doing that evaluation at the age of 40, one of the things we're thinking about is genetic testing. And also always, always, always telling your doctor if somebody in your family develops cancer. Um, the other point, so thanks for bringing this up, that I talked to about women with the breast cancer gene is some women assume, and you can understand why, that that can only come from your mother's side of the family. Mm. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. So you can get it equally from your mother or your father's side. So really important to pay attention to your father's side of the family as well.
1: Absolutely. Well,
2: the success
1: story is cervical cancer, Right. Um, something that was just uh, devastating decades ago. And now we have made such strides in it just because of a simple screening. Um, and now there are other recommendations and that have added on. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah. So again, this is, this is our different guidelines groups loving saying different things, which is very confusing <laughs> to people. Um, So, you know, again, I would just point out um, we can't forget about cervical cancer. It's still a leading cause of cancer death globally for women, and the only reason right now that we see lower deaths in countries like the United States are pap tests. Now we're starting to see the impact of the HPV vaccine, uh, which is a vaccine against cervical cancer. Um, And we're starting to see that that's reducing uh, rates of cancer, but that's really going to take decades because, you know, as as I I suspect most of your listeners know, that's something that we give to individuals in their teens. Um, It it hasn't been around long enough really to to impact our cervical cancer rates. Um, Briefly, what happened was the American Cancer Society, which frankly is not the group that most experts look to for cervical cancer screening guidelines came out and said that they thought that pap tests should start at the age of 25 rather than 21, which is what the other expert groups, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and our government group, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, say. So those groups say 21. American Cancer Society says 25. And the American Cancer Society also said that they thought that women in their 20s should get screening with something called the HPV test, testing for the virus that causes cervical cancer. Um, The reason uh, most experts aren't following that recommendation at this point, and in fact this year the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists came out and said that they would not recommend that at this point, is that many women in their 20s in fact have that HPV virus, but it never causes a problem. It just goes away. Um, So the the issue that that many people have with these guidelines is, is that if you check a woman at the age of 25 for the HPV virus, you're very likely to find it. And then that will lead you to do further invasive testing including biopsies of the cervix Um, and we know that that's true because it's been studied Um, so i think the big picture is get cervical cancer screening Um, whether you follow either one of these guidelines that's still great and it's still going to be life-saving Um, but understand that many experts still recommend starting the pap tests at 21 um, with a test that doesn't look for that virus until the age of 30. Um, Why start looking at 30? Well, that's when we are finding the women where the virus isn't going away and it can cause problems and we should be doing this more um, invasive testing. Now, the other side of this coin is when can you stop, Exactly, And that's the question I get a lot. Um, And so the answer for that is that um, all the expert groups say that you can stop. Now, are we saying you can stop because uh, we think that older women, you know, we don't care, or uh, remembering that the HPV virus is acquired sexually, that we think older women never have sex? No, that's not the reason that we think you can stop. The reason that we think you can stop is that as long as you've had testing, and we know that you have not had the HPV virus uh, you know, in your 40s and 50s, or, or problems with precancers there, because of the changes that occur to the uterus after menopause, uh, the virus just can't get in there anymore. So there have been some nice studies that women really don't get new HPV infections um, after about 60. So we usually stop around the age of 65. Now, it's really important, though, that, the, that, that that recommendation is for women at average risk. This is not for women living with HIV. This is not for women who may be on other strong immunosuppressant drugs. If, you're, if you've had an organ transplant, as an example, you really need to talk to uh, your women's health provider. Um, but for average-risk women, as long as those PAPs have been normal in your 50s and early 60s, is, it is okay to stop. Um, at the age of
1: 65. And cervical cancer is something that theoretically can be prevented. Talk about a little bit about the HPV vaccine. And those recommendations have
2: also changed. Right. So, <laughs> you know, this is an issue, you know, that women ask about. Uh, but so, so I, I explain it this way. Um, the HPV virus is exceedingly common. And so the vast majority of women will have acquired the HPV virus um, shortly after they become sexually active. Um, so although the HPV vaccine is now approved and we're allowed to give it to older women, um, the benefit of it is, is, is really minimal if women have previously had sexual intercourse. Um, so that's why it's so important to get your daughters vaccinated when they're teens. Not and the way. boys. And the boys as well. <laughs> um, and why the boys? Well, you know, obviously the boys pass the HPV virus, but also HPV causes head and neck cancer. It causes penile cancer. It causes anal cancer, which boys and men can get. So it's really important to get that vaccine as young as possible. There's also evidence it works better uh, when you give it younger, which is why it's actually fewer doses um, for individuals who get it in early adolescence. Um, But in terms of, you know, I'm 30, should I get the HPV vaccine? I would say that would only be in really exceptional circumstances. So if you're someone who never had sex and now you're saying, well, I'm gonna start at the age of 30, you know, that, that could be a reasonable choice. Um, but otherwise, it's really get your pap tests because whether or not you've had the vaccine, you still need your pap tests because the vaccine um, initially we thought prevented about 70% of cervical cancer. Um, that number may actually be higher, but it's not perfect. So at this point, it's really important to, to get those pap tests.
1: I asked Dr. Pregler about the other ways that women can help protect against HPV.
2: In terms of prevention, um, you know, for for the HPV virus, it's really not like um, you know some of the other STIs or sexually transmitted infections that we think about. So, as an example, for HIV, you know, using condoms definitely can protect you against uh, HIV. We have oral medications that you can take to protect you against HIV. For HPV, you know, those sort of barrier methods, um, you know, you really shouldn't consider yourself protected. And from everything that we can identify, you know, there's still a risk that you're going to get the virus. So it's really vaccination and then pap tests are, are the way that we, we deal with HPV. Smoking critical. So there's so many reasons not to smoke. <laughs> Smoking causes wrinkles. Uh, you know, we got Bad that. Teeth. Um, but you know, cervical cancer is yet another reason, um, because there's no question that women who smoke are more likely to get cervical cancer.
1: So we just talked a lot about the recommended screenings. Uh, my guess is that there's a number of folks out there that are wondering about ovarian cancer and is there screening for that? So I'll let you tell us the, the news.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, as I I think you were preparing your audience for, the news, unfortunately, is not good about screening for ovarian cancer. So there have been large studies um, really trying to show that doing ovarian cancer screening with blood tests and ultrasound tests was effective, and it's not. Now, we've learned more about ovarian cancer uh, in the last decade or so that's really helped us understand why it's not. Um, So, screening works because you find a cancer at a small enough stage to treat it effectively. Um, And that's why cervical cancer screening is so effective, because we're actually scraping those cells. We can look at the actual cells of the cervix. Cervical cancer screening works best. Colon cancer screening works well because we can find the cancer often before it's even a cancer in a precancer polyp stage and remove it. Okay, what about ovarian cancer? Well, the problem is we've learned now that many ovarian cancers actually start in the fallopian tube, which is the little tube that connects the ovary to the uterus. So you'd have to have some sort of tiny little like colonoscope that looks through the fallopian tube to find these early, and we don't have that technology. Um, And unfortunately, blood tests, generally aren't positive in early ovarian cancer. And ultrasound, by the time you can see that cancer on the ultrasound, again, often it's had to grow through that fallopian tube, escape it, you know, get onto the ovary, and then we find it. So unfortunately, it's, it's too late to make a change in the course of, of, um, of what's gonna happen. So I think the message about ovarian cancer is first, fortunately, um, it's not very common much less common than breast or colon or lung cancer. Second, a higher percentage than in breast cancer of women who get ovarian cancer do have a gene. So paying attention to your family history can find those women who are at high risk and who really should have their ovaries removed as soon as they're done with their childbearing. The final thing is to be alert for symptoms of ovarian cancer. Um, We we used to think, oh, it didn't have symptoms. We now know that it does, but they're subtle. Um, So if a woman notices that she is having some pelvic pain, um, that she has noticed that suddenly she's got more frequent urination or constipation or feels bloated, it's really important if that's a change for you to go to your physician and get checked. And you know, I think I rarely say something like this, but I'm gonna say this in this case. If that's a change for you, you really do need a pelvic ultrasound test. And if you go to a clinician who says, oh, you don't need that, even though it's a change for you, um, you should find a clinician who will, who will talk to you and listen to your story. Because unfortunately, we know from studies that women who get symptoms of ovarian cancer often will visit several clinicians before they get their diagnosis. So again, many of us have had bloating for years. Many of us have had constipation for years. That's not what I'm talking about. But if it's a change, then make sure you get an adequate evaluation. Excellent advice. Thank you.
1: We're going to end this episode here. I told you there was a lot of information. We will post references and resources in our podcast notes for the specific screening guidelines that we talked about. And here are some of the other takeaways. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women, and if you have a family history of breast cancer, then it's a good idea to talk with your doctor about clinical genetic testing. This is different and more accurate than the testing that is available commercially, such as with Ancestry and 23andMe. Colon cancer is the third most common cause of death in women, and screening now starts at 45 years of age for those with average risk. If you have a family history or other risk factors, you'll want to screen at an earlier age. And while it's not the most common cancer in women, lung cancer is a number one cause of death due to cancer in women. For women who smoke, screening with CT is recommended. Cervical cancer is one of the most preventable cancers, not only because we can catch abnormalities before they turn into cancer through pap smears, but we now have the HPV vaccine. Avoiding smoking and practicing safe sex can also help prevent cervical cancer. While there is still no effective way to screen for ovarian cancer, if you have a family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, talk with your physician about genetic screening. And no matter what your family history is, it's important to tell your physician if you have pelvic pain, are experiencing more frequent urination or constipation than previously, or feel bloated. Those could be signs of ovarian cancer. If your doctor doesn't check it out, consider consulting another physician. In the second part of our interview, I talk with Dr. Pregler about other health concerns and preventive measures, including screening for cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis, the adult vaccines we need, hormone checks, and more. I hope you'll tune in.
0: I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shambayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.